white soul brother, they called it. He put the soul in the music. Pat Burns, one of the greatest songwriters of all bloody time. You know, he's as simple as that. The guy was a genius. Welcome to Rock Solid, the comedy podcast for all things music, both new and classic. I'm Pat Francis, and tonight, there's no Kyle, there's no Mike, there's no Murray, there's no April, there's no Christy, it's just me and my guest. So tonight I have, uh, I'm so excited about this show tonight, I gotta tell you, I, uh, you know how much I, I talk about rock docs on the show, and I've seen a great one, it's called Bang, the Burt Burns Story, and tonight I have one of the co-directors who also happens to be Bert's son. Okay, so before we start, I'm going to throw it over to the booth, and we're going to hear West Anthony do his thing, and he's going to promote the Shure SM7B microphones. West, take it away. This episode of the Rock Solid Podcast is brought to you by Shure, the company behind some of the world's most iconic microphones, earphones, and audio products, including the legendary SM7B mic that we use to record Rock Solid. The SM7B offers perfect response for music and speech in all professional audio applications. Used to record Michael Jackson's Thriller album, engineers and artists continue to choose the SM7B for warm and rich vocals. And it also shines on just about anything you put through it, such as guitar, bass, kick drum, horns, and even as a hi-hat mic. For 93 years, Shure has been the go-to company for roadworthy superior sound. Every member of the Rock Solid Podcast is proud to use the SM7B microphone because we care about bringing our listeners the best sound possible. All right. Thank you, uh, West Anthony and Steve-O Dockerson over there in the booth. Let's welcome Brett Burns. Brett, hello. Hello, Pat. Thank you so much for having me on today. Uh, now, my fear tonight, uh, Brett, is that I'm going to call you Bert because it is... <laughs> it I told my wife that. I go, I'm going to call him Bert. I know I am, but... I'll try not to. Brett, 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 Brett. It happens at least once a day that somebody calls me Bert, so I'm, I'm really used to it. I take it as a compliment. Uh, so uh, you, sent me a, you sent me a Vimeo link so I could watch this, uh, this documentary, which currently has 100% uh, uh, on Rotten Tomatoes, which is thrilling in, it, in itself, I'm sure. And, then, uh, and also then when you see something that's 100%, you're like, oh, come on. This is 100. This is out... out and out a hundred percent. I've watched it at least, at least almost three times. Wow. And my wife's like, didn't you just watch that? I go, I know. And just, and I was watching it right before I left. Cause I was trying to find this, uh, this sound bite from, uh, one of the guys, I think his name was, uh, it was just, it's just such a funny old school sound up that he, uh, that he was, uh, which guy is it? Don, Don Droughty of Dante and the Evergreens. I think that's him. He said something about your dad, like something about the, the you might know it because you probably lived with this film for years, something about rocket ships on his sneakers or something. I just, it was just the funniest, 
the funniest uh, turn of phrase that I've heard, and I really wanted to find it. I couldn't find it. So Yeah, Don Drowdy, he says, uh, your father had rockets tied to his roller skates, so he was rocket, on fire. Yeah. Rockets tied to his roller skates. That's I'm going to try to use that in my everyday life. Yeah, Don is amazing. <laughs> he was the lead singer in Don Saving the Evergreens that did the song Alley Oop, and he and my dad were close friends when they were both just getting started and hadn't even had any hit records yet or anything. Now let's talk about, for people that haven't seen this yet, of course we don't want to give the whole story away, but I, I do want them to... Uh, to know uh, that we're talking about your dad, Burt Burns, uh, founder of Bang Records, and um, and has written songs that you probably don't know that he's written. And I'm going to tell you, I'll tell you real quick. In 2016, I was at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction because my favorite band is Cheap Trick. Wow. And my friend's favorite band was Chicago. So we went and they inducted your dad, Burt Burns. I have to be honest, I was like, who's Burt Burns? That's what I said. I'm yeah. like, I, I said it out loud. I'm like, who's Burt Burns? And then little Steven, you know, listed some songs. And I was like, oh, oh okay, sure. Okay, that guy deserves it. Yeah. But, that's how, but that's how I guess your dad's career is. Because it, his career, he passed away young. Mm -hmm. And his career was on fire, but it was very short-lived. Right. How long, um, how old was your dad when he passed? He was 38 years old. And he... When he was a kid, he contracted uh, rheumatic fever. Right. And that plays, uh, that puts scarring on your heart. Is that what it does? That's right. That's correct. And so um, if he wouldn't have contracted that, he, who, who knows? He would be 88 right now, by my count. And in this film, I can't believe how many of the guys are still alive and kicking and they look fantastic. Yeah. They yeah. really look, uh, they really look great. It's amazing. So, um, so your dad, your dad, gets rheumatic fever. I don't even know how you get rheumatic fever. You just uh, like a strep throat. It was something as simple as that before penicillin. And, uh, you know, if you got that, it was like a death sentence for a lot of people before, you know, the advent of modern medicine, Bobby Darren, uh, same yeah. thing. So he, so he was actually, I mean, not he, he lived a long, he lived a long time yeah. for, for having this because yeah. they didn't, they, they, they didn't think he would live that long. And, and, and man, did he do something with his life? Right. I mean, in the, you know, look, you and I are both older than your dad was when he passed. You and I are the same age. Uh, and, uh, and man, he, he packed it in. He did. And I think, you know, knowing that he had that limited amount of mm -hmm. time on uh, that ticking time bomb of a heart that uh, I think that's what motivated him to live life like there was no tomorrow and yeah. to pack as much in as he could. And I think that's responsible for that incredible seven year run that he had and all that output of music. And uh, how old were you when your, uh, when your dad passed away? I was two and a half and my sister was 10 months old and my little brother was two weeks old. So, so you, if, if they don't have any recollection, then none of, of us father, do. None, none of, of yeah. Do. Even I was going to say, even when Michelle Kath was here, she said the same thing. She was like your age and she's just like, yeah. not really. No, my sister in the film, she says, all of my memories of my dad are someone else's. And I feel the same way. It's like, I feel like I have memories of him. Um, cause I heard all these great stories all my life, but, right. uh, it really is. Um, we've kind of recreated a memory of a person we never knew. And, and yeah, I mean, it must be like in this film, there's uh there's actual audio of your dad, uh, from the producer's booth. Uh, when you found that, I mean, that must've been in incredible to hear, to hear your, I mean, maybe there were tapes or home movies or stuff, or maybe there weren't, but 
there weren't. But but when when you came across this, that was quite a find probably for you to hear your dad's voice. Yeah, that was one of the most incredible discoveries that we made along the way. It was, uh, you know, sort of his voice and outtakes with Betty Harris Session. And mm-hmm. um, I had heard him singing on some records, but I'd never heard his spoken voice. And so um, I still cherish uh, that discovery almost more than any other. And in, in the film, uh, a couple of the guys say that your dad's singing voice. It was just okay. <laughs> yeah. Some people like it. That's but. coming from me. I can't sing at all. Do you, what about you? Do you sing? Oh, never. No way. I can play guitar, <laughs> but I will never, you will never catch me singing. Um, so uh, he was born uh, Bertrand Russell Burns. That's right. And, but he wrote under a couple different uh, names, right? Yeah. Like, why, why was that? He was Bert Russell and then Bert Burns. Yeah, he did was, that get, does that get um, does that get crazy with the um, publishing and all that stuff, or was he eventually able to tie it together under one name, or how's that work? Well, it's one of the ongoing mysteries. Uh, you know, is like why did he use so many different names? I mean, he had Russell Bird as a performing yes. uh, artist, but uh, Bert Russell was his songwriting name, and Bert Burns was his producer name. And um, we've heard different things like, you know, uh, maybe he was going to use one name as a BMI and was an ASCAP. I mean, there were always different right. reasons. But uh, in the end, after about 1963, 64 onward, he mm-hmm. only wrote and produced as Burt Burns. I guess right. he must have figured out like, you know, Keith Richards says in the, uh, in the, in the outtakes that we have in the DVD. Oh, I can't wait. Oh, it's so great. Keith, uh, just as, I mean, we could have made a whole film with just these outtakes. <laughs> um, they're an hour long, but uh, Keith says, you know, we were sitting there a lot of scratching of heads trying to figure out Burt Burns, Burt Russell, was this the same guy? <laughs> he must have been a black guy. We couldn't figure it out, you know, and it's really funny how he describes it. Maybe it was something like for me, this is how I thought of it when I'm watching. I'm like, well, maybe he used this name and if he if he failed under that name he could still succeed under this name you know you can just keep reinventing yourself but he you know he succeeded all the way no matter what name he used well he certainly diluted his name recognition with all these names you know it's hard bad enough that no one knows who he is and then some people might know him as burt burns Mm -hmm. and russell bird and burt russell and so it's uh you know having to piece this story together we also kind of had to you know, recreate an identity that was scattered with all these different names. Well, what's great is, you know, you're mentioning Keith Richards and, and, and Paul McCartney's in here and little Steven narrates it. And, um, yeah, I mean, just all these guys, they know who your dad is, Yeah, which is, that's so cool. Yeah. I mean, you know, you know, Mick Jagger doesn't know who my dad is, but he knows Burt Burns. It's so he does. great. He does. And, um, what, uh, so the, the trajectory after he had, um, your dad had the, um, rheumatic fever and he gets, I mean, better. He, I mean, he comes home from the hospital, but he can't really, he's, he can't be active really. Right. He's not allowed to be, can't put stress on his heart. Yeah. He, he never went back to school again after he got that rheumatic fever as mm-hmm. a young teen. And, um, the family moved him to Florida, to Miami because they thought the weather would be better, but yeah. then he didn't like it there. So he came back to New York and, um, you know, instead of sort of like crawling up into a ball, like some people might do when yeah. they find out that they have a death sentence, he just decided to live his life and started dancing in Harlem Mambo nightclubs and, you know, goes to Cuba before the revolution. I mean, we go through a lot of this yeah, in the film, yes. but, uh, you know, it really was, he didn't waste any time. He just like tore straight into life, but he wasn't really from a musical family. No, but they bought the piano for him yeah. because he was home all the time. And so, so that was something for him to do. That was something so they, they wanted to nurture some type of a, a talent or some type of fun for him. And that, that was the best thing they could have ever done. Yeah, yeah. He just played like hours of classical piano. And I think that really mm-hmm. uh, informed his songwriting later with the classical uh, upbringing, you know. 
But, and, and what I like about this story too is he, like I said, not from a musical family. Your dad made his own way in this business. Yeah, he f figured it out, you know how to do it, and he did it. Yeah, and it's it's like a, really a, a celebration. It's really a, a success story of 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 your of what your dad did. Yeah, and it's uh, it's very inspirational on many levels. Mm -hmm. And one of the most inspiring for me personally is he was a late starter. He didn't have his first hit record till he was thirty one years old, which is uh, pretty long in the tooth for rock and roll back in those days. And can you imagine that now, someone thirty one trying to break into the music business? I mean, it's um, it, that would almost be impossible now. Right. I mean, unless you're were a genius, and your dad's called a genius many times in this film. But yeah, I can't. Um, yeah, I can't imagine. Yeah, no, it was, uh, I mean, you know, his family thought he was insane going into the business, you know, at that point. Yeah. And, um, and really it was as soon as he got that first job, that first $50 a week songwriting gig, yeah. he had a hit and it was a little bit of soap by the Jarmels, a doo-wop number that, uh, was a pretty good size hit. And then from there, it just was like this meteoric, uh, you know, star shooting across the sky of New York city for seven straight years. Well, since you brought up a little bit of soap and I have that, uh, on the list, let's hear a little bit of a little bit of soap. A little bit of soap will wash away your lipstick on my face. But a little bit of soap will never, 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 ever erase the pain in my heart and my eyes as I go through the lonely hills. A little bit of soap will Wash away my tears. Mm, a little bit of soap. Love it. Awesome. Love it. Let me ask you, uh, let's ask a little bit about Brett Burns. Uh, Brett, what was your background before you made this film? What, uh, what, how did you make a living? What were you up to? Yeah, I, uh, I did everything I could to get out of the entertainment industry because my mother, you know, picked up after my dad mm -hmm. passed away in 1967 and had a whole, you know, sort of 15 year run in the record business of her own. And she was one of the great women in the history of the record business. So and she, she learned about the record business just from being married to your dad. Right. And then he passes and she kind of picks up the family mantle and runs with it. Yeah, I mean, she had... That's pretty incredible. It's incredible. She, you know, she she was a go-go dancer in the Peppermint Lounge. That's what, that was her background. Mm -hmm. And uh, so when he passed away and there was a record label and all the artists left the label, Van yeah. Morrison leaves, Neil Diamond leaves, yeah. as, as they would because they were there for my dad, certainly right. not for a 24-year-old widow right. with three babies in the crib. So um, she really picked up and had an amazing run. She discovered a singer-songwriter by the name of Paul Davis who had a bunch of hits in the 70s. Oh, I go crazy. That's right, yeah. And uh, Cool Night. And he just yes. was, Paul was like an uncle to my sister and brother and I uh, growing up to all of my siblings. And um, and she discovered Peebo Bryson. And, oh, wow. And uh, had hits with a band called Brick, um, uh, which had a big hit called Daz. Um, so my mom was the star of our lives growing up and I didn't know very much about my dad, just the little bit that she would tell right. me and my siblings along the way. And so, you know, we, she moved us to Atlanta after he died in New York city and we grew up in the oblivion of the suburbs of Atlanta, Georgia, and it was really wonderful. Um, and I went to college in Virginia and I joined the army. I uh, wow. served in the Israeli paratroopers. Uh, again, because my dad was a Zionist and loved Israel and wanted to fight in the Six Day War, but he 
had you know, brown eyed girl going up the charts in 67 and, uh, and then he died in 67. Yeah. So, um, you know, I, uh, I did a lot of things in my life to sort of like please the father that I never knew. And mm-hmm. that was one of them. And, uh, I came back from Israel one weekend and, uh, I had been in an ambush in South Lebanon with the Hezbollah. It was one of the biggest firefights I'd been in the mm-hmm. whole time I was in the army. And then I come home and that weekend and my sister says, we're getting the copyrights back. And I didn't know what that meant, but the songs revert back to the air as if and the how author, old are you at that point? I was in my um, mid-20s, like okay. 24, 20, 23, wow. 24. And um, it was really a wake-up call for us. We realized, okay, we have this legacy that we're going to have to take care of and nurture. And, and it was Paul Davis who said, Ben David, he was from Mississippi, and he talked mm-hmm, yeah. real Southern accent. He, he said, that was my middle name, Ben David. He said, you know, this legacy is, is yours, and, and only you are really going to be able to champion your father. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, he told me at a very young age that I was going to go on this journey, and I didn't believe him when he said it, but uh, it really did take years for us to realize, first of all, the depth of the legacy. Like yeah. we discovered the hundreds of songs that he wrote and produced. Many of them I found on eBay from record sellers all over the world when eBay came along. Yeah. And, um, you know, and then I started to, you know, meet his friends. My dad would tell my mother, my children will know me through my music. It was a, sort of a mantra of his. He knew he was going to die young. And so he would say this. And I never really knew what that meant. What does twist and shout and hang on sloopy and right. I want candy and you know, the sort of those pop songs, what do they tell you about a person? Now, right now, people listening, their head just exploded because they're like, what? Wait a minute. Those are Burt Burns songs. I know those. I know all those songs. Yeah. Yeah. He wrote at least a dozen classics and he produced probably another dozen more songs that if only he had only produced under the boardwalk and brown eyed girl and songs like that, I think his legacy yeah. still would have been, you know, worthy of a rock and roll hall of fame induction. But the fact that he wrote songs like hang on sloopy and tell him and uh, cry to me and everybody needs somebody to love and peace of my heart. And I mean, my goodness, the songs just to go on and on. Like uh, it really was a discovery of the depth of the legacy and then of how obscure he was. And that was re- what really motivated me and made me go into the entertainment industry in the end, because I thought, okay, the only way we're going to get him recognized for his musical legacy is to tell this harrowing life story yeah. that we, that we uh, discovered. I'm going to, I want to play a song that you, you just brought up, uh, song by the exciters and again i was really i'm like it, it just kept when i watched this movie i just kept saying he wrote that one and yeah. you know and he wrote this one and i mean because a lot of the songs they're not similar mm-hmm. hang on sloopy is not like uh tell him right so let's hear a little bit of uh tell him by the exciters Brett, I, I don't know anything about publishing and money and all that kind of stuff, but I think this song was on the Big Chill soundtrack. Yes, it was. That's got to be something good. Yeah, yeah. That's <laughs> I mean, good. that was like uh, that was like one of the biggest selling soundtracks. Uh, I think until maybe the Bodyguard came out. I mean, that's how I know this song. I know it from 
seeing the big chill when I was in high school and owning the big chill soundtrack. That's how I know this song. Right. Now, did I read the liner notes and read the name Burt Burns? I did not. Uh, I didn't even know who sang. I wouldn't even have known the artist who sang that, but I knew the song. Yeah. It's so, amazing how many of my dad's songs are actually known, not because they were hits in their time, but mm -hmm. because they were either covered by great artists like yeah. Janis Joplin covering a couple of the biggest songs. Um, you know, the blues brothers covering everybody needs somebody, yep. you know, those kind of things were really, and then these movie licenses, like when you have, uh, you know, use like cry to me and dirty dancing or tell him in the big chill, the songs just become even bigger than you could have imagined. Yeah. And so I that's mean, been the, a blessing. You know, the, the word iconic is, is thrown around so much, but it, iconic, these yeah. are iconic songs. So I just want to know that cause you, you, you always hear about all these bad publishing deals and everything. Your dad has left the family. Uh, he had good deals. Did he have good deals with all this, this stuff? He made very bad deals at first. Sure, but, they, uh, but every, all those music people do it. That's yeah. in, that's all the time. But I mean, he came out through the other, you come out through the other end and, and you guys are, are uh, okay. Yeah, we're, <laughs> yeah, he, 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 his songs have taken very good care of us. There's a song called mm -hmm. I'll Take Good Care of You that, uh, you know, really uh, we identify with because his songs have uh, taken extraordinarily good care of the family all these years. But uh, yeah, when he started, he got robbed just like everybody else. Yeah. I mean, he got smart quickly. And, um, you know, when he, he, st he started his own music publishing company and his own record labels because his belief is like first hands on the money, get paid at the sources. He would tell all of his friends yeah. and, and give them these lessons that he learned the hard way himself. But um, yeah, we've also had to fight along the ways as the heirs to recapture rights and, and enforce the rights. It's, and that's not the fun part of music publishing or the entertainment. Business. But now you guys hold it. You guys have it. Yeah, we no, hold no, it. no one can take it away from you. No, eventually they'll go into the public domain, but even then they, they, they'll yeah. live in, in our hearts and in my children's hearts forever. And what about uh, gold records and stuff? Do you guys have those awards? Do you have things like that uh, as keepsakes? We have some old BMI awards of his that are like wooden plaques, old fashioned mm -hmm. things like that. But, uh, you know, most of the things that he had got lost along the way. I mm -hmm. mean, like we made this movie without a single frame of video of my dad because none exists in the world. And the reason for that is because the day that he died, we were moving into a house in uh, New Jersey yeah, and in we film. were in a hotel room uh, across from the Dakota. And um, my mother never went back to the hotel room after he passed, but in that room were boxes of home movies and the things that really matter when you're what, moving. So what do you think, did the, did the people at the hotel just throw those away or? Thrown out on the street. Yeah, she never went back and they just figured it was uh, abandoned junk and it yeah. just went straight. I mean, I understand that she wouldn't be able to go back into the hotel. I, yeah, mean, I understand because you're not, and you're not thinking that, oh, I got to get that stuff. You're just not thinking that. Yeah, it's really a tragic part of the story is, you know, the, so much of the legacy was lost. But really, when you look at it, the music was not. And we yeah. recaptured it and we, you know, clawed rights back and we would find records again, like on eBay. And, you know, 40 of the songs in the documentary are songs like this that we discovered B-sides of some obscure record that were just classic Burt Burns songs. Is uh, now I don't know if I have it here, but uh, well, here here's one that you you wanted me to play. Uh, Am I grooving you by Freddie Scott? Yeah. Now, why what why does this mean so much to you? Why was this? Because when I ask you, hey, are there any songs you want to hear? This was one of the one of the first ones you said. Yeah, well, it's a song that features heavily in the film, and um, it's one of my favorites. Freddie Scott is really one of the great unsung heroes of that whole time and place, and my dad worked with him right at the end up until the very end, and. 
Um, I just love the entire Freddie Scott output. But Am I Grooving You is a record that, uh, you know, Keith uh, Richards and Ron Wood, they they covered that song on a solo album. I mean, it's like a kind of a deep, cool uh, R&B soul record that uh, um, was actually made. And this is something not many people know. Right after my dad died, my mother brought these guys into the studio, all the same people that he worked with, and just wow. said, make this record. And they made the record as if it was a Burt Burns production. And his oh. name is on as a producer, even though it was recorded in 1968. So, Am I Grooving You? This is a labor of love for your dad. Yeah. Let's hear a little bit of it. When I touch you, baby... Am I grooving you? And if I love you too much, baby, am I grooving you? Do you need me? Do you always want me by your side? Let me love you. Let me try to keep you. Satisfied Cause I'd like to hear you say Sounds great in the headphones It's amazing, yeah, that's uh, Sissy Houston and the girls singing background vocals Sissy's a star of the film You know, all the same studio musicians were there for that session It's really one of the masterpieces yeah, I only named uh, Little Steven, Keith Richards, and Paul McCartney, but Van Morrison's in it, Ronald Isley, Solomon Burke. I didn't, I didn't know Solomon Burke was still around. He looks amazing. Yeah, he passed um, shortly after we oh, did that interview. So, yeah. He looks great in the yeah, film. Yeah, the oh. lion was roaring in his, uh, in his throne. He made oh. us get him a throne. It was part of the, uh, the rider. And oh, really? Yeah. The chair he's sitting in, he, that's what he wanted that? He wanted two dozen red roses and a throne. <laughs> And he sings, he just, he just breaks into song at one point and it's, it's wonderful. It really is amazing. I mean, you know, getting Solomon Burke and these people in the film, again, many of them have passed since the yeah. film was made. Um, you know, it was, uh, one of the motivating things for me is I went to see Freddie Scott, who we just heard at a, at an oldies concert in Long Island with Wazzle. Wazzle's the, uh, you know, we'll talk about Yeah, Wazzle. we'll talk about Wazzle. Um, That's a, this guy's a character. Yeah, old uh, kind of gangster. Um, but uh, I went and saw Freddie Scott, and I was just so excited to meet Freddie Scott. And I was telling him, I was thinking about making a documentary about my dad, and I hoped that he would let me interview him. And he was like, yes, just let me know when. And then Freddie dropped dead. <sighs> and that motivated me to just start shooting interviews with these people because I was afraid I was going to lose them. And, uh, of course, we have lost a lot of them since, but most are still with us, thankfully. Uh, Brenda Reed from The Exciters is in it. She, she, said, uh, she said your dad, he's cool. He was the white soul brother. Yeah. And Sissy Houston's in it, Benny King. Um, these, uh, there, were, there were no uh, racial boundaries in the studio with no. your dad. No. These people loved your dad, and, and your dad obviously loved these artists. I mean, that must have been... Uh, you know, because I don't know what it's like to be black now, let, let alone then. But they must have felt like this was a safe haven for them in the studio and, and to create. And and uh, there's a part in the film where some of them are invited up to your dad's penthouse. Right. Maybe it was Solomon Burke. Maybe it was him. And he's just like, I, I'm never in a penthouse. I was never in a white person's apartment. Right. I mean, it's, you know. 
Yeah, that's pretty. It, it's it, I, I love that part of the film. I love that that all these people loved your dad and he loved them, and it was really a nice mutual respect. It was. It really comes through. Yeah, it was yeah. a magic time in America, you know. And I think that uh, with my dad in particular, you know, he almost only worked with uh, African American artists and bands. I mean, it was really um, it was an exception if the band was white or yeah. if the singer was white. His sole love and focus was really R and B. And soul music, really contemporary uptown soul, which he and some other people really invented uh, that that whole sound right there in New York in the early yeah. '60s. Um, so, you know, the fact that he would have them all up to the penthouse, um, I think, was part of what made the magic happen because they they felt comfortable with him. You know, when they would just sit up all night drinking and cooking out and yeah. smoking weed and you know whatever yeah. else might have been going on up there, and then when they went in the studio the next day. You know, they were friends, and, and yeah. there was already. And, and I'm sure other people that lived in that building did not like that. Yeah, probably you know, not. I bet but it. I like that you because I I create a backstory for myself that where Burt Burns is like, well, I don't give a fuck what the rest of these people think. These are my friends, and they're coming up to my penthouse. Yeah, now he danced to the beat of his own drum. That's what Benny King said, and like to hell with you. That was his attitude, and yeah. that got him into some trouble too. Yeah. Um. Now, did you conduct these interviews? Were you here for all these interviews? I conducted uh, every one of these interviews, and uh, it was terrifying for a first-time filmmaker <laughs> to sit in front of anybody, much less some of these giants. I mean, it was uh, really... Um, so you 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 were, you were sat there with Paul McCartney. Yeah. How much time does a Paul McCartney give uh, a Brett Burns? Does he say, I can give you 20 minutes? Does he say whatever you need? I felt like with Paul in particular and, you know, with Keith and these uh, superstars, yeah. uh, you know, that I wanted to, you know, make the most of the time that I had. So sure. we would. You're we being, usually, you're being considerate of their time. Yeah. And, and I felt like it was, you know, like a, a half an hour was plenty of time mm -hmm. to get through. Although like with some of the interviews, like uh, with Carmine Denoya, that was like a three hour interview. And, you know, <laughs> my mother was a three hour interview, yeah. and, you know, but uh, with guys like Keith Richards and, and Paul and Van Morrison, um, they were pretty quick, maybe half hour, 45 minutes. Yeah. And the amazing thing about those guys is they're so pro. They just come in prepared. I feel like I asked Paul McCartney one question and he was just off and he, he interviewed went. himself basically. And it was amazing uh, just to sit there across with him and like willing him to just keep going. Well, let's, since you brought, since, since I brought up Paul McCartney, let's hear, first let's hear Twist and Shout by the Isley Brothers. And then we'll talk a little bit about how Phil Spector had this song and didn't do it justice okay. but we'll listen to uh the isley brothers and then we'll listen to uh what the beatles did with it the Isleys and let's go right into the Beatles. You know you got me going now. Got me going. Just 
probably the first time I ever heard this song was probably the Beatles version. And I like in, in the interview, Paul even says people thought that they, the Beatles wrote that song. Sure. And that was also, that was a co-write because your dad would write songs by himself, but then he would, he would write with other people too. Right. So let's give uh, Phil Medley. Phil Medley. I don't know who Phil Medley is. Phil Medley had one hit and it was Twist and Shout. And my dad was really remarkable as a songwriter because in those days, um, almost every songwriter had a writing partner. Lieber had Stoller and Goffin right. had King yeah. and Barry Mann had Cynthia Weil. And uh, Burt Burns was the only one of these songwriters that really wrote by himself, lyrics and music. Or he would write with everyone from my mother to Van Morrison. You know, he has maybe, I don't know, like 50 or 60 you know, co-writers on yeah. the uh, copyright search. So now, um, as someone who who was not a, a a nice person might try to uh, get all of the pie for himself, but that doesn't seem like that was what your dad was about. If if he was writing a song and someone helped significantly, or even maybe just a little bit, but enough to where he thought that was an important, integral part of the song, then they would get co-writing credit. That's what came across to me. It's That's exactly true. He was so fair that if there was one person in the room, he split it 50-50. Or if there were three, mm -hmm. you know, it was a third, a third, and a third. It was like, um, so he, um, you know, there's, he never really took more of a song or yeah. less of a song. He just like, you know, just drew the line down the middle. Phil Medley, the story goes, there were two other guys in the room and they both went to get coffee and uh, pizza and they came back and the song was written and Phil Medley got half the credit of a song that nobody knew it was going to become one of the greatest right. songs in rock and roll history. But, uh, you know, that's kind of how it worked back Now, then. were those other two guys there to help write it also? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, they were just there to like, they were all there to write songs, songs. together and they were like, let's go, we'll go get some, uh, you know, some cigarettes, some coffee. And then um, they they're, came back and the song was already done. They're not going to write a hit while we're gone. Right, right. We'll be fine. Yeah. So um, never go get the donuts. <laughs> the worst songwriting uh, story that I've ever um, read is, uh, you know, the song, I Want to Know What Love Is by Foreigner. Yeah. Everyone knows that song. I guess uh, Mick Jones started writing it and he asked Lou Graham, the singer, to help him write it. And together they finished it and then they would always discuss at the end how much percentage and Lou said I think 50-50 and Mick said I think 95-5 meaning Mick won in 95% and Lou said just take it because mm. he was so pissed off yeah never thinking that what this song would do so yeah Lou doesn't even have songwriting credit on it no there's some unfortunate stories there in the foreigner story yeah yes I know it sucks does but not with my dad i, I couldn't no. find anybody who said he robbed me um you know there were some uh, whispers of uh you know the mob played a huge part in my father's story and uh, i'm sure we'll talk about that but uh you know no one ever said that uh burt burns robbed them i think you know neil diamond feels like my dad didn't pay him properly and mm -hmm. i don't know if van morrison also felt that way my mother robbed neil diamond and van morrison <laughs> blind you know after my father died they were both on their their first albums both came out on bang records which was your dad's label and i love that you i love that in the film you use the bang logo throughout the film i mean the font if whatever you want to call it and i and i remember that bang logo because my brother had uh it was a, it was a double disc neil diamond compilation and um, those, those first two Neil Diamond albums, I'm a big Neil Diamond fan. Me too. Uh, and I was waiting. I'm like, hey, I wonder if Neil Diamond's going to be interviewed in the film. And then, well, we find out that your dad and Neil had a falling out. Yeah. But um, uh, so you didn't try to, did you try to get Neil? Oh, yes. We tried very hard. Um, we got about 
99% of the people we hope to get into the film. The only yeah. two that got away were Jimmy Page and, uh, and Neil Diamond. And, and Jimmy Page um, kept saying, you know, I, uh, you know, I, know I, I want to be in this film. I'm going to try mm-hmm. to schedule it. And, you know, he's constantly remastering Led Zeppelin albums. But he, <laughs> yeah. he played a very And I'm constantly buying, rebuying uh, yeah. those. So. <laughs> me too, me too. And, uh, you know, so we, we never were able to wrangle uh, Jimmy. But, mm-hmm. um, but with, uh, with Neil, it's, it's trickier because, you know, as we tell in the film, I mean, he came within an inch of his life, I think, because, you know, my dad used too heavy of a hand, I, I would mm-hmm. argue, even as his son. Um, in the negotiations by bringing the head of the Genovese mob into the negotiation. I mean, that's like very heavy hand. Right. Um, but, uh, you know, it's, uh, I don't know, maybe he he never reconciled with what happened there. Um, that's sad because, I mean, you know, he's he's in his 70s and, you know, he's, it, it's not like he just disappeared. No. He had, he had fantastic success. Yeah. And I got a letter from him um, a number of years ago when I was just getting started. I Mm -hmm. wrote a letter to Neil Diamond, kind of almost like a fan mail letter. And uh, months went by, never heard back. And then all of a sudden I get a letter from him and I treasure it to this day. And he he says, you know, if it wasn't for your father, you know, I probably wouldn't have made it. And I held him in a state of awe during my time at Bang Records. And I was there in the office when he named you his son, Brett. And, you know, um, I was holding out hope that he might uh, give us the interview. But you know, who knows? There could have been other issues. I mean, Neil right. doesn't do these things. That's the other thing you have to stop. He and doesn't say to yourself. do stuff. He no. doesn't do documentaries, and nope. you know, so um, it's understandable, I guess. And the other thing that was remarkable too is we found a lot of great archival footage of Neil, and 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 we put it in the film. And then when we got our date with South by Southwest, and we were racing to finish the film, and we were not getting an answer from Neil about the interview and whether we could even use that stuff yeah. in the film, we took it all out. And what it did was made a better film. And this is not just spin. It kept the end of the story focused on my dad's That's legacy. Interesting. And not on the Neil Diamond stuff, which as much as I love those songs, mm-hmm. those are not Burt Burns songs. No. Those are Jeff Barry and Ellie Greenwich and right. Neil Diamond records right. that my dad worked like a madman to get them yeah. you know, up the charts. But they weren't that R&B and that no, soul music they're not, that no. my father. And yes, yeah, Jeff and Ellie produced those albums too. So it was just, it, they, those were just released on your dad's label. Correct. He would have been maybe executive type producer, just overseeing what yeah. was going on. He was in there clapping hands and singing background vocals mm-hmm. and, you know, yeah. uh, but where he really came in is, you know, when the records were pressed and he was working radio, because my dad did everything. He wrote the songs, he produced the records, he went to the DJs. You know, um, I mean, there wasn't anything he didn't do along the way of uh, records yeah. uh, creation. Two nice Jewish boys. You think they'd work it out? You think they would? <laughs> yeah. You know, as uh, Neil Diamond put out a Bang Records uh, retrospective. Yeah. Um, all of the songs that he covered, uh, recorded for Bang Records a couple years ago. And he wrote the liner notes himself. And the, my phone didn't stop ringing when it came out because people were saying, did you notice that uh, Neil Diamond wrote the liner notes to his Bang Records uh, See, I'm gonna have to pull that out when I get home and read those liner notes because I, you, you know, liner notes you read them once and then I'm not, I haven't read that since it came out. Yeah, well, they're great liner notes. The only part that's missing is Burt Burns. There's just no mention of Burt Burns, the guy. <laughs> it's his who, label. It's his label. Yeah, he, yeah. But uh, again, you, know, you can read between the lines, and uh, again, I, I can't uh, stand in judgment if somebody had, you know, threatened uh, me with the level that my father had threatened Neil. Yeah. I might also feel, uh, you know. We did get Van Morrison, who I thought would be super tricky and and hard to deal with, but he was great. He was great, and uh, you know, over the years growing up, I had heard and read things that were both complimentary about my dad coming from Van, and some things that were uh, maybe less so. And um, so it was really fantastic to meet him and speak with him. And I think you know, 
my theory is that Van didn't know about all the things my father was going through with his health issues and with his battles with Atlantic Records and probably, the mob. Yeah, probably not. Now that I'm thinking about what was in his answers and stuff in the film, he probably didn't. Yeah, he, he didn't know. And, and so I think that, you know, this, what the New York Times called the Burns Boomlet, which is this musical that's going to Broadway and Joel Selvin's epic biography and now this film, I think that uh, Van and, and a lot of people have learned a lot about Bert that, that things that they didn't know and it might have helped uh, give them a, a new sense of their own history and some catharsis as well. Very cool. Uh, the... Um, I want to play Brown Eyed Girl. Your dad produced this. He did. Um, and it was a brown skin girl when it uh, came into the studio and they, they changed the words to brown eyed girl because it was never going to get on the radio as a brown skin girl in 1967. And yet four years later, brown sugar gets on the radio. Right. A lot changed in the couple a of years. A lot changed. Uh, well, brown eyed girl is, is, that's just so much better. It's so much better. Yeah. This is like a staple at my house because my wife has brown eyes and my youngest daughter has brown eyes. So this, this is a great song. And I like in the, in the movie, in the doc, the guitar player asks if he can play bass. Yeah. And they say, what are you talking about? You're one of the best guitar players ever. We don't want you to play bass. And then he says, well, I'm, I'm going to play bass like no one's ever played bass before. Yeah. And he plays it with a pick. Right. All right. Let's hear this. Everyone knows this song. Come on. Blowing my mind. Yeah, such a mind. great album. Yeah, no, that was also a big uh, source of conflict too, because my father, uh, you know, was told Van he was just making singles, and then Van goes back to England and he comes back, and there's an album which he had no idea that Bert was making an album and mm -hmm. calling it "Blowing Your Mind," which you know Van was not into psychedelics, so I don't think so. It really wasn't his. Uh, you know, kind of thing. But um, in the end, the record is a you know, stone classic. It, it's so great. See, this is what I'm glad. I'm glad that Van, because you're, you're naming a bunch of things that Van might have had some problems with, and yet he agreed to do the documentary, which yeah, is great. Yeah, no, I mean, you know, Wazel taught me a lot of things. Uh, Carmine Denoya, his nickname is Wazel, he said, you got to crawl before you walk. And uh, so I took that to heart, and we started interviewing people that uh, we thought we could get, like, mm -hmm. you know, Sissy Houston and Benny King and people who, although they were giants, they were, you know, they, I think they're the heroes of people like Paul McCartney and Keith yes. Richards and, and Van. And so when a first time filmmaker with no distributor and, you know, no, nobody, nothing kind of like going on, but, you know, but a, a rough cut that had all these legends and these people that they, those guys loved, right. I think it made it uh, easier for them to come on board, you know, when, when they did. I love how music uh, like ping pongs across the pond, like, uh, rhythm and blues, that's what that's what Jagger and Richards and Lennon and McCartney loved, and that's what they looked up to. And then, you know, 
later bands in the in the states looked up to the British invasion. It's just like it just keeps going back and forth. It's but it's all starts with with the music that your dad produced. Yeah, and he was, as we'd say in the film, he was the first and really almost the only American producer to go to England during the British invasion because he sees all these like you know checks coming in from England for these songs that he had written yeah. covered by these uh, British bands, and so. He was invited by Decca Records to go and produce anyone he wanted to, and that's how he discovered Van and Lulu, and he passed on Tom Jones. This is a story we couldn't tell in the film, but my dad didn't see the potential in Tom Jones, and he passed on working with him. And then six months later, when Tom had his big hit uh, with It's Not Unusual, my dad walked up to him in a restaurant and shook his hand and said, you can't pick them all. <laughs> Tom Jones tells that story because Burt Burns was his dick row, the guy who passed yeah. on the Beatles. <laughs> This is not not to step on your story, but I, I just recently heard a story about um, uh, Mike Campbell from uh, the Heartbreakers. He he wrote um, he wrote Boys of Summer, and he presented that to Tom, and Tom just didn't like it. He didn't get it, and so he then he took it to Don Henley, and Don like recorded it immediately. He's like this this is this is it. Let's do it. Let's finish it and record it immediately. And then when Tom heard it on the radio, he did tell Mike, yeah. That was a mistake. Awesome. Oh, my God. <laughs> Love Tom Petty. Tom Petty covered a Burt Burns song. He covered Cry to Me with Mud Crutch. That's a, one of those little sort of uh, trivia, trivia, Burt wow. Burns trivia. I, and I have those Mud Crutch albums. Yeah. yeah. So, see. This, it was this, Tom's father's favorite song, and so he he recorded Cry to Me for his dad. See, these this people, you're going to start going on a, on a deep, deep dive of Burt Burns. Yeah. Hopefully after you hear this, but then especially after you watch... This, uh, this documentary, which comes out June 1st. It comes out on DVD uh, June 1st because it's been making the rounds uh, for two years since South by Southwest world premiere uh, two years ago. And then we had a U.S. theatrical mm -hmm. release uh, through Abramarama Rama and um, Apple Music and Jimmy Iovine uh, came in and uh, put us, gave us a, a global digital mm -hmm. release. And so the fact that it's coming on DVD right now is really special because I think most of our audience are people who want a DVD yeah. still in this day and age when... CDs and DVDs are kind of like going the way of the eight-track tape, but uh, is it weird to pick that? You have a DVD in front of. You. Is it weird to hold that in your hand? Like you know, all the blood, sweat, and tears, and hard work that went into that, and you're holding it right there in your hand. I take it everywhere I go. It just inspires <laughs> me. It's so great looking, and I just love it. it. Does, so, yeah, the 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 artwork, everything about it. There's a really cool picture of your dad. So you got a smoke in his mouth there. Every picture of him has a cigarette in his mouth. He chain smoked uh, filterless. Now, see, that's mouth. another thing that that's crazy to me is he has a heart condition that doesn't stop him from smoking. No, back then it was like right Chesterfields that cigarettes doctors recommend yeah. most. I mean, I think he knew potentially that this couldn't be good for him, but yeah. I mean, he was just like had this nervous energy, and you know, mm -hmm. he was this, this kind of like long hair, and he was sweating all the time, kind of like <laughs> I am now. And uh, you know, the cigarette was just sort of a part of his, I think, his persona. You know, it just yeah. was in every single picture we found him. He's got that cigarette. Well, it's you know when I see you know David Bowie's gone, and every picture I see of David Bowie, he's got a cigarette in his hand or in his mouth too, and it's just. I've never smoked, so yeah, it's not, not my yeah, thing. Yeah. But um, but yeah, I always, you know, since he had a heart condition, I was like, ah, the smoking. Yeah, no, and he was seeing Doctor DeBecky, the great uh, heart surgeon who uh, he was, you know, he was trying to get the heart bypass surgery. Mm -hmm. He was trying to build up, you know, the, the courage to actually go under the knife. But uh, as he said, it was like going to the moon back then to have that surgery, or just yeah, as likely to. Yeah, die. it says like it was, I think Steve Van Zandt says it's like uh, science fiction back then to yeah. open up your chest and go in there 
Can you imagine? No, he, he was going to do it. He was uh, seeing this famous psychiatrist who had only saw Holocaust survivors because mm-hmm. I guess he was also grappling with the issues of death because, you know, he was having cardiac uh, events. And we, there's a story we tell in the, in the extras that Brooks Arthur, my father's uh, engineer, the great Brooks Arthur, says that they were driving down the freeway one day in the Jaguar convertible 12-cylinder and my father just pulls over and pulls out a uh, paper bag and starts breathing the Valsalvo method. And, you know, it was, um, you know, so he would have these kind of yeah. um, cardiac events. And not everybody knew. In fact, most people didn't know that he was sick. He, he didn't sort of let people in on that. He acted like he was normal. Well, I think I think people that do that probably, they're, they're afraid that record companies or artists would think that they're a liability. So they might not want to work with you if they think that you're, not feeling well or sick. Yeah. So and he was kind of like this tough guy too. Mm-hmm. He was very macho. Like, you know, <laughs> I was called a fighting Jew. You know, he watched the Holocaust as a kid and, you know, he would say never again. And I think that fighting Jew is uh, kind of part of this guy who, you know, broke a few eggs making omelets yeah. as Joel Selvin wrote in his book. Well, I think he met the right woman then because your mom and uh, I hope this term is okay with you. She comes across as a ballsy broad to me. That's the best way I've heard it all, in a long time. That's and, who she is. And she, I mean, those two together must have been a force to reckon with. I love the story. He's, she's in his apartment. He just turns the light out and kisses her. And she's like, oh, I'm in love. Yeah, <laughs> so right. So great. Yeah, no. And uh, it, it was, it happened all very fast with, with, with them. Um, you know, a couple of dates and uh, she, he, she was knocked up. This is not something that we talk about in the film because yeah. she did not want me to. Um, ironically, we go into this. Isn't that funny? All the stuff that, that, and all the, like she says that she was a go-go dancer, not a stripper, but a go-go dancer in in clubs frequented by the mob and all that stuff's okay. But, but the act that you, that you, you're in love and you, and you get pregnant, that's a no, no. Right. (laughs) Right. He did the right thing and he got married and had two more kids into the next two years. And, you know, I think they were genuinely in love, but she was tough and, you know, she, I've heard stories that, you know, she would drive him crazy and, um, you know, like he had this great Dane dog and the dog would constantly like hit her pregnant belly and, <laughs> you know, with his tail. And she's like, you got to get the dog out of here. It's either me or the dog. And he said, okay, you know, and he, he moved out with the dog. <laughs> yeah, so that was my dad. He was uh, not going to be pushed around by anybody, including my mother. I think there's another part in the film where, um, she said something to him, maybe in a meeting or something. And then he was mad at her, but then he gave her a kiss and told her that, she was right. Yeah. Something like that. I'm yeah. paraphrasing the whole thing. Yeah. Somebody said she was a great first lady. And I think that's a, mm-hmm. you know, really good way to put it. She, um, she was tough. And so, you know, he might've crumbled at that moment of truth mm-hmm. when his partners at Atlantic said, you know, we want to, you know, take a commanding control in the record label. And, uh, she, as we tell in the film, she stood up and said, hell no. And, you know, uh, it was sort of, that was the beginning of the end of that relationship. Yeah. But, um, you know, that is my mom. Like she was the toughest man or woman I ever met in my life. <laughs> uh, well, again, I'm so glad that, uh, that she, you had told me, uh, before we started recording that she, your mom passed away not too long ago, but she was able to go to the screening see it on the big screen and get a nice uh, round of applause from the audience. So that's really great. Yeah. My mom, she, uh, I always uh, joke, but it's not a joke. She was the hardest interview for me to get. I mean, with all these icons of uh, rock and roll and rhythm and blues, my mom held out very long and, you know, made me really suffer to get her to sit uh, for that interview. And when she did, it was like just raging bull the whole time. And was it because she was afraid to talk about things that would make her emotional 
is that what it was you think or or you know obviously she didn't want to she, she it wasn't just like i don't want to be in your stupid film she just she probably didn't want to talk about th these things maybe maybe they bring up too many memories yeah i think it was a combination of that and um you know she always accused me of making too much out of the mob thing you know and one of the taglines of the film is music meets the mob and you know it's mostly about the music and the music is what's important yeah. to me but again we realized and you know everybody loves a great mob story yeah. and this is uh one of the best ones i've ever come across your, your dad hung around with some wise guys yeah but your was, dad doesn't come across as a shady character in this no. but some of his friends were but they they didn't i mean they didn't help sell his records or anything like that they just seemed like these were they liked the music they liked your dad they liked his company and so they just hang out together yeah that's how it comes across to me I think but they all they were also you know they were also if any if anyone does anything to Bert, they're gonna there's gonna be some trouble. <laughs> those type of guys. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the mob we learned were everywhere back in those days. I'm in the sure business. they were. I'm sure they were. Yeah, you couldn't do business without doing business with the mob. Yeah. That's how it was with the DJs, with the labels, everybody. But nobody was as mobbed up as my dad. And you know, <laughs> I, I say that you know, kind of like thinking, all right, you know, but it's true. Um, you know, he was on the level of Frank Sinatra. Um, and it was because, you know, he grew up on the mean streets of the Bronx and he was comfortable with those guys. Yeah. And um, he, he had just enormous charisma. He was like a character, had the kind of charisma of a rock star. And so those mob guys were attracted to him too. Yeah. And I think he liked them. And so, you know, he ran around everywhere with Carmine Denoya, the star of our film. Yeah. But there was a guy named Tommy Eboli. And Carmine's uh, Wazzle. Carmine's Wazzle. Why is it, why, where does Wazzle come from? So Wazzle was a mispronunciation of uh, Louis Armstrong's song, I'll Be Glad When You're Dead, You Rascal You. And oh, he that's right. He says that, that at the beginning. He yeah. said, and he couldn't say, someone couldn't say it, so it came, he couldn't say it, yeah. so it came out Wazzle yeah. instead of Rascal. Yeah, he okay. mangles the English language, you know, we mm -hmm. almost uh, subtitled him so people in the middle of America could understand <laughs> what he's saying, but uh, we decided not to do that. But uh, yeah, he was, uh, my dad ran around with Wazzle everywhere, but the relationship with Tommy Eboli mm -hmm. was one that really happened more in the shadows. And on the boat, they had yachts berthed yeah. next to each other at the 79th Street Boat Basin. And so, you know, nobody really knew, you know, my dad had a relationship like that with Tommy and with the Pagano brothers in Westchester <laughs> and those kind of people who, uh, This is know, what I mean. This is a Scorsese film. I'm telling you, when you watch this documentary, just imagine it then taken to the next level and it's it's a Scorsese film and it totally works. The story's fantastic. The characters, all the players, everything, the music, the best soundtrack ever. We used to think like, we got to find Martin Scorsese because he's got to make this movie. And you know, Martin Scorsese is a busy guy. And so we just started making wow. this documentary ourselves. Maybe he'll make the biopic one yeah. day. There'll be a... But you, it, it's fantastic. It is so good. I want to play a couple songs, songs that that we know but we didn't know that they were Burt Burns songs. For example, I'm going to play the original of this song by uh, the, uh, the, the Strange Loves. Am I saying that right? That's right. It's a weird word. It looks like strangle gloves. It looks like a <laughs> bunch of different things. And then you're going to know this song, and then I'll play the maybe the version that you know better.
talk about who 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 that band is in a minute, but this is the version from 1982 by Bow Wow Wow. I didn't even know this was a cover when this came out. Wow. I knew a guy who's tough but sweet. He's so fine he can be beat. They changed the gender. He's got everything that I desire. Love the guitar. Yeah. So that was released on the Bang label. And that was, uh, there's four songwriters on this. There's Burt Burns. And then the three guys that make up the Strange Loves. Right. And tell who those guys are. So that's uh, Richard Goddard, Bob Feldman, and Jerry Goldstein, who were three songwriter producers, um, you know, who wrote uh, My Boyfriend's Back by the Angels and uh, had a couple of other hits. And, um you know, they just uh, sort of became this uh, bogus uh, you know, British invasion act. Actually, they said they were from Australia. Sheep herders from Australia, Miles, Niles, and Giles Strange, each of whom had different <laughs> fathers. And the mother was out in the bush all the time. I mean, they made this whole shtick. And, uh, and then it was the first hit on Bang Records. And the label that just started just shot out with like a giant record. And they discover the McCoys on the road uh, and uh, record a song called Hang On Sloopy with the McCoys, which was the second big hit on Bang Records. So. We'll play that next. I, but So this the, the Strange Loves was kind of a goof, right? They're yeah. just kind of, it was almost like Spinal Tap. They're just like, oh, let's pretend we're a band and we'll we'll make a great song. We'll be a band. Yeah. They didn't play any instruments. Nope. They just banged drums. Yeah, African, African uh, hair drums. <laughs> yeah, wearing zebra skin jackets. I mean, it was hilarious. And the one member, I can't say his last name, Richard... Goderer. Goderer. Yeah. And he, he co-produced the first Marshall Crenshaw album, which is a fantastic album. Oh, yeah. Those guys went on to have huge careers, uh, you know, after The Strange Loves. I mean, Richard Goderer uh, was a partner in Sire Records uh, with Seymour Stein. And uh, now he runs a company called The Orchard. Orchard uh, you know, was a huge uh, record distributor. Jerry Goldstein also had a number of uh, hits with uh, Sly and the Family Stone and War. Um, and Bob Feldman also, uh, you know, wrote songs and kept going. So, yeah, those guys, uh, they're amazing. And these guys, these guys are all in the film. I assume they're still alive. They all look fantastic. They're all going strong. They look great. Yes. I say the strange loves have to go out on tour. They have to go to uh, Coachella next year. Well, we're going to do a tribute concert. This is as if like, you know, the Burt Burns uh, Mm -hmm. boomlet's going to keep going. And uh, we have this musical going to Broadway. There's a whole bunch of other things happening. But uh, I'm going to do a tribute concert. And I'm going to ask all of our, you know, fans and all of our friends, this Bruce Springsteen and Bette Midler and all those guys to come and sing a Burt Burns song. But I want to get the strange loves up there with those African hair drums to do I Want Candy one more time. So the musical that's going to happen, happen is this uh, like like the like the Carol King musical or yeah. Jersey Boys even? It's uh, closest to Jersey Boys. Um, we've been developing it for 10 years in New York City. Uh, musicals are hard to do. Mm-hmm. And uh, we uh, it's a long, long story, but uh, we were developed by the not-for-profit theater companies like New York Theater Workshop and The Village where Rent was born. And we went oh, to sure. New York Stage and Film and spent a summer at Vassar College where Hamilton did their pre-off-Broadway work around the same time. And uh, we went off-Broadway in the summer of 2014, got a great review from the New York Times called us Gorgeously Tuneful. And uh, majority of theater critics uh, also uh, weighed in and, you know, Stephen Van Zandt and Paul Schaefer and guys like that joined us as producers going to Broadway. That's fantastic. And then the film 
happened. And the film was and is has been such an enormous uh, success that, um, you know, two years later, we're still, you know, about to release the DVD and there's going to be international broadcast uh, in the fall. So uh, but the musical is uh, really the, the crown jewel of our efforts. And um, after the off-Broadway production, we're going to be taking it to Broadway in the uh, next 18 months. You're so busy that I am amazed that you even answered my email. Oh, no. <laughs> are you kidding? This is fun. And when I was like, we really got dug into some of your podcasts and things, I really enjoyed oh, it. Oh, thank you so much. Okay, so uh, hang on, Sloopy. This was written by Burt Russell. Yeah. <laughs> and Wes Farrell. Right. And uh, this, is, uh, this is a band, the McCoys, and Rick Derringer is the, the lead singer and the guitarist. But he, he doesn't look at all like the Rick Derringer that we know you know, later on down the road with rock and roll hoochie coup. This is, this is a completely different thing. I even forget, again, that's another thing about this documentary. I'm like, oh my God, yes, I forgot Rick Derringer was in the McCoys. Yeah. So let's listen to Hang On Sloopy. when you're putting together this musical, how hard is it to choose the songs? I mean, there's, there's ones that you know have to be in it, but then it must be, it must be hard to make those choices. What's not going to be in it. Yeah. You know? Well, we, um, we really let my father's songs guide us because mm-hmm. one of the things that distinguishes his body of work is the autobiographical nature of his music. Um, he more than any of the other songwriter at that time really wrote his pathology into his songs. And so when you look at, uh, Peace of My Heart and Heart Be Still, those are the two last songs that he wrote in the end of his life. And, you know, he was writing about his heart. And so, you know, the Cry to Me, Cry Baby, these songs, I mean, his songs were very deep and, you know, very soulful. And I feel like they were more autobiographical. And so when we started to plot, you know, how we were going to tell this story, we really let the songs uh, guide us. And so that's why the show is different from Jersey Boys and Carol yeah. King. It's like we're sort of transformative of a genre that's, uh, you know, um, arguably uh, there's too many of these jukebox musicals running around, but our show is very different. And um, and that's how we got in the door with the not-for-profit companies in New York that would never let a jukebox musical, you know, anywhere near them. So, uh, you know, the songs really, uh, you know, we our mandate was, uh, you know, let, let the songs, whichever song works is going to go. And if we used to say, if Twist and Shout doesn't fit in the show, it's not going in there. It's not going in the show. But uh, thankfully it did. I <laughs> think we would have been convinced to keep it anyways. Let's hear, uh, I do want to play a uh, piece of my heart. I mean, there's been so many covers. I mean, Melissa Etheridge has sang it. Sammy Hagar has sang it. Uh, so I guess the original version is Irma Franklin though. Yeah. That's Aretha's older sister. That's right. I didn't even know there was an Irma Franklin. Yeah, no, she had this 
one hit. She had a couple other smaller hits, but this was her big hit. And, uh, you know, when my father died, that was really the end of, uh, of her career and, and many others as well. People yeah. told me like when he died, that was it, it was over, it was all done. So, um, you know, I think it was the end of an era in music, but it was mm-hmm. also, uh, you know, when my dad was gone, you know, yeah, he nurtured these people. And then without that father figure, if you want to say that, how did no one else want these artists though? I think it was again this sort of the the, the era of the self-contained uh, songwriter and an artist was mm. coming up. It was the Beatles, you know. Like my dad said, these guys are going to be the end of people like me because they realized these kids, these kids have genius. They're going to be the yeah. end of songwriter producers like uh, Jerry Ragavoy and Burt Burns and Lieber and Stoller and these guys. It basically they were all finished right around the time that my dad died. It just happened to be, I think, the end of an era, and only people like Carol King who wrote. And saying her yeah. songs kind of kept going, but then there were there were people like uh, Burt Bacharach who continued to write songs, and yeah. Carol Bear Sager, and people like that. So yeah, yeah there were there were of course uh, exceptions, but exceptions, for the most yeah. part, I think um, you know most of them folded up their tents at the end of this thing, and then Led Zeppelin and everybody else yeah. came along, and that was kind of the beginning of a whole new turn in rock and roll. Well, let's give Irma some love, and then we'll play what is probably the most well-known version of the same song, but this is Peace of My Heart. Didn't I make you feel Like you were the only man Didn't I give you everything That a woman possibly can So uh, that was a co-write. He co-wrote that with, um, I don't know. How to, Jerry Ragavoy. So bad with name pronunciations. Jerry Ragavoy. He's in the film. And he's, I love, he just says, I showed this clip to my wife today. He said, yeah, Bert would uh, play his guitar, play some funky stuff on his guitar, and I'd play some funky stuff on the keyboard. We would just write some funky stuff. Right, yeah. It's like this this old Jewish guy getting funky. I loved it. It was yeah. so, he's, he's so cute. Is he still with us? No, um, this actually, is, this he is had insane. a stroke. I don't even want to ask anymore yeah, no, about is, who's here and who isn't. No, most most are here still with us, thankfully. But uh, Jerry Ragavoy um, had a stroke during the interview at the Bitter End oh. in New York City, and oh, I walked God. into the cab. It took about ten minutes to go just from the stage to the street, and uh, gave him a kiss goodbye. I loved him very much. Um, he was one of the people who stood in the gap uh, for my dad. And uh, went to the hospital and died 48 hours later. That is a horrible story. Yeah, sorry. Oh, my God. Trying to keep this light and fun. But, uh, yeah, there's a lot of dark uh, dark corners in this Burt Burns story. Wow. All right. (laughs) Here's Big Brother and the Holding Company. This will lift our spirits. Yeah. Uh, With Janis Joplin, Peace of My Heart. Yeah! 
So now this one was released after your dad passed, so he never heard this. No, no. Jerry Ragavoy got to live to see Janice not only uh, cover that song, but also Cry Baby, the great Garnet Mims classic uh, soul record. Uh, Janice really just dug those Burt Burns, Jerry Ragavoy songs. And this thing, this sold half a million copies, the single did. Mm. So... Yeah, no, he, he never lived to see uh, a lot of the biggest uh, covers of his songs, you know, with the Janis Joplin, uh, you know. Jerry Jerry got to buy a new car, I think. <laughs> yeah, Jerry. <laughs> with, oh, thanks yeah, to Janis. Yeah, she covered a couple of other of his songs as well. So uh, it's uh, Stay With Me Baby was a song Jerry Ragavoy did. It was I always used to say to him, that's the greatest song my father never wrote. But it was, a, you know, like an R&B record mm-hmm. straight out of the Burt Burns kind of canon. And, um, you know, I think... Jerry would be the first to admit that my father taught him soul. Jerry taught my dad a lot of things too, but yeah. uh, you know, it was a real great relationship. I do also want to say that there is a soundtrack for this movie. It's on vinyl and it's on digital download. It's 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 past the CD. You can either you can either be a cool hipster and get the vinyl or you can just download it be a kid and uh, I downloaded the whole thing. It's th- this is it's so great. Yeah, Sony Legacy, which is the label that uh, owns the Bang and Shout uh, Masters, my father's two labels, uh, did a remarkable job with the soundtrack, and I just can't thank them enough for for what they've done for my dad. And how does that how does that happen when you're making? Because a lot of times a documentary doesn't have a soundtrack. I mean, it might um, there's songs in the movie, but it might not have an official soundtrack. How did you guys go about? getting Sony Legacy involved? Were they on board immediately or did they want to see the film first? How does that work? Gosh, that's a good question. Um, you know, Doug Morris, who is one of the stars of the film, one of the great record men of all time, um, was the chairman of Sony uh, Music at the time that the film came out. I think now he's uh, doing some other things. But um, Doug uh, may have played a part in it. But I think the guys like John Jackson and the guys at Legacy, um, they... You know, when we told them we were making this film, they said, well, we want to make a soundtrack. And they said, if we were lucky, we're going to put it on vinyl. And then, of course, it became this like double vinyl <laughs> gatefold masterpiece. It's really the trophy that I, uh, you know, the, the greatest trophy we could have hoped for. And you gave film. me one. Yeah, yeah, I brought one for you. I wanted you to have a copy. That is soon. I appreciate it. Uh, what other songs? I have a whole list of songs here that are from the soundtrack. Is there something in particular you would like me to play tonight? Well, um, you know, I always love to shine a light on some of the obscure songs because, you know, like we we used to find these records on eBay and then uh, play them on a record player and wonder, like, what are they going to sound like and what are they going to tell us about our dad? And and uh, there's a song called Show Me Your Monkey that we used to think, like, what does this song mean? What are they talking about? Is it some kind of sexual double entendre? Which, you know, maybe it is, but uh, it's a song that I love and, uh, you know, really features in both the uh, the film and the musical. And this is Kenny Hamber. Kenny Hamber, who I also adore. I met along the way. He never had any real big hits, but he's, uh, you know, had a, a very uh, remarkable career in, in um, gospel music and uh yeah, this record, we're, we're hoping that it uh, becomes like a classic sort of, you know, 50 years after the fact. Okay, here we go. Show me your monkey. Do you really love me? Well, come on and take off And show me you love me By the way that you I'm 
this is also a co-write Burt Russell and is it Mike, Mike, Leander. Mike Leander? Yeah, great arranger from England that my dad worked with. You know, just one of dozens and dozens of of co-writes. And you know, you listen to that song and you think like, oh my God, I've never heard it before. But there's things about it that you sound familiar because that's Sissy Houston and the girls singing in the backgrounds, oh, yeah. and that's uh, you know that baritone sax that's buried in there. You know, is the same guy Artie Kaplan that played the sax on so many of those sessions. So, you know, it was the uh, it really was like these musicians, these people came together and made this music together and they collaborated. And like you said before, color barriers just were left yeah. at the door. And my dad, he was like real collaborative spirit. He would say to Sissy Houston, you know, just sprinkle a little something on there. And she really wrote a lot of those vocal uh, arrangements uncredited and yeah. probably un, you know, uh, unpaid in some respects over the years for that, you know, but uh, and not just for my dad, but for everybody from Backrack and on down, like she and... You know, Dion and Dee Dee Warwick, they would sing those background vocals and she'd make it up as they went along is what we learned. That's great. Yeah. Um, what is the, well, I love the collaborative thing you're talking about because there was probably, everyone probably wanted to work with Burt Burns and Burt Burns probably wanted to work with everybody. <laughs> yeah, he did. And he did work. I mean, you look at the sessionography in Joel Selvin's book, uh, that a guy in England named Rob Hughes put together. It's just, I mean, you can't believe that this guy had such an extraordinary output in such a short time. I love books like that. I love to read that minutia. Yeah. <laughs> just every little take number seven and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. I love it. Let's hear, and here's a band I don't know, so let's play. The band's called The Pussycats. And this is a song called You May Be Holding My Baby. If you're out tonight holding someone tight, I wonder maybe if he's holding you so. Are the lights down low? You may be holding my baby. Steve Van Zandt, uh, was it easy to get him on board to do the narration for the movie? Yeah, I mean, it was uh, easy. Nothing's ever easy, of course. But right. uh, with Stevie, um, he's 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 a, he's a he's a fan. He's My a music junkie. Yeah he, yeah, he 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 knows this stuff better than I do. Mm -hmm. And um, you know, along the way, I, I was uh, fortunate to meet him through a friend, uh, John Luongo, great record man, and um, it was the beginning of a relationship. And I had. You know, I, I just knew that he was going to play a part in our lives. I wasn't really quite sure how, because yeah. when I um, uh, cut the first uh, edit of the film, I learned to be an editor over 10 years, which is amazing, because <laughs> I can't even, like, you know, uh, you know, tie my shoe when it comes to technology, but I can edit in Final Cut. <laughs> and uh, so I had this edit, and I did it without a narrator, and I thought I was being really clever. And then my co-director and editor, Bob Sarles, who uh, I can't talk enough about and really made this film something beyond my wildest dreams, he was the one that said, no, 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 you need a narrator. You didn't get the whole story in the interviews. And so he took Joel Selvin's book and the audio book and sort of pulled narration from Joel's book. And it was really a brilliant move. By that is Bob. a good move. And, good um, job, Bob. When, yeah, right. <laughs> and when uh, when we were done and we were saying, we sat around and we said, okay, who's going to, who do we want to narrate this? And Stevie was like the first thought that came through my mind because 
he's sort of, you know, he's not just a musicologist. He also has the voice of Burt Burns. He kind of yeah. brings the that New York uh, sort of character. And, and, and he was on The Sopranos. Yeah, so yeah. He knows, so he brought a little He understands Sylvia, the world, yeah. Right, he brought a little that Silvio Dante into the interview. Um, and it, it was so amazing. It was almost a one-take uh, narration session. He just sat there and with his dog in his lap and just with read With his the, dog in his lap. Yeah, in his <laughs> studio in New York. And um, he and his wife, Maureen, are working with us as producers on the Broadway show as well. So... Um, you know, it was, that, I got that phone call from him, you know, saying, are you guys uh, standing up? Are you sitting down? Your father is in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And my sister and I jumped and like hit our heads on the ceiling because that was the goal of this whole enterprise. We're like, how are we going to get our dad in the Rock and Roll Hall well, of Fame? Well, you did it. Yeah, it was, uh, Stevie though was, uh, he's like, he says, I'm a hard guy to say no to when I get uh, something in my mind. And so <laughs> he, he really uh, made that happen. Um, and, uh, well, you know. rumor has it that uh, Steve Van Zandt has a lot to do with who gets in the rock and roll hall of fame, not just Burt Burns, but other people too. He has a lot of say, a lot of pull. He, uh, from my, I heard that he got all of those songwriters into the hall of fame a couple of years ago when Jeff and Ellie, Jeff Barry and Ellie yeah. Granich and uh, Barry and Cynthia and all these great songwriters got in. I, I believe that, uh, it was Steven Van Zandt that made that happen. Well, I mean, they, they should be, I yeah. mean, look, Without the, it's like a movie. Without a script, there's not a movie. Without songs, there's you know. Without the song written, there's not an artist singing it. So yeah, nobody understands that better than Stephen Van Zandt. Yeah. Now, um, did Stephen Van Zandt help you get your Bruce Springsteen tickets? No, because I learned a <laughs> long time ago. Like one time, I made the mistake of asking Stephen for some favor connected to Bruce, and he says. Stephen Van Zandt does not do bar mitzvahs, weddings, and he goes through this whole list of things like <laughs> for, for Bruce Springsteen. I was like, I'm sorry I asked. Yeah. And so um, it was actually the publicist for the musical, okay. uh, is, uh, Rick Miramontes, the greatest publicist on Broadway, is Bruce Springsteen's publicist. Okay. So I, uh, I called Rick. Yeah. I didn't know if Stephen maybe would say, hey, if you ever want to see... Bruce on Broadway, let me know. No, I get to see Bruce a lot because I always go to Steven's events and every time I go to anything Stevie does, there's Bruce. He just shows up. They're, they're best friends. Yeah, that's nice. Yeah. I, I like when I hear stories like that, that uh, they're, not just, they're not just on stage together. They, these guys are, are together. They love each other. They're, they're best buddies. And, um, you know, so I, uh, you know, we thought about trying to get Bruce into the documentary. And uh, that might have been when I asked Stephen, but uh, you know, it was like <laughs> we, we, we originally we thought let's make a music documentary like so many others. We'll have some performances, we'll have like icons talking mm -hmm. about Burt. But then when we realized, okay, we have too much story to tell in ninety minutes as it is, so there's going to be no performances, and there's going to be no Bono or, or you know, like that kind right. of thing. Like it was only the people who were there in the story are going to be in this film, and uh, well, that we, makes sense. That and that again, that's what that's what makes this work it makes it authentic it makes it it, it makes it real i mean it's and, and it's the, like you said it's the people who were there so i believe it yeah. and all their stories are the same you know what i mean no one's like refuting something that someone else said everyone is saying the same thing uh and praising your dad 100 percent, which is very cool yeah and it's a it's a the film is a time capsule of new york and the music scene in that era and i think it's the only documentary if i'm not mistaken that really has uh, taken this time period and the subject matter on the way it has and um bob sarles his wife christina keating they're a filmmaking partnership so i had okay. like two for the price of one these guys working and christina found all that great archival footage uh, that's in the film and so how did you how did you hook up with them did you know them from some someone else did how did 
How does that work? It was Joel Selvin, the, the, who is a star of the film, who wrote the Burt Burns biography. Oh, okay. He said, you need to work with Bob Sarles. He's going to do for you what I did for you with the book. And, uh, you know, I just kept hearing this for the longest period of time. And then finally we were set up for a blind date at some dinner and there was Bob and uh, we were just off to the races from that point on. Cause, yeah, because you, you have to get along. Yeah, no, I love him. He's like a big brother to me. And, uh, you know, like my somebody said, great art sometimes is made in turmoil. I know my dad, you know, life sometimes represented that. And there were times where Bob and I would butt heads. But, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I really gave him a free hand also the way my dad would do with his artists. Again, my father has always been this kind of, you know, example for me to follow. And so, you know, when I met Bob, I didn't just sit over his shoulder. I, I, I left him alone for most of it part of a year I'd come in and I'd look at cuts and we'd talk and mm-hmm. you know um so yeah I mean people say how does a first-time filmmaker make a film this good and I just point to Bob Sarles and say find a guy like that that's the genius that uh, really helped uh, bring this thing over the top you see on a much 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 smaller level I know what you're talking about because uh when I when I do have a day job when I'm working I, I story produce for reality television so I would put together my rudimentary cut and I would hand it off to the editor and then, and I would tell him, do whatever, do whatever you want. You know what I mean? Right. Basically. Yeah. And then he would go, I would go in and he would show me, I'm like, that's amazing. Mm-hmm. And so then when the producers would come in to give us notes, you know, he'd be turning to me and going, Pat, this is fantastic. And I'd just be like, it's that guy. Did yeah. I mean, I gave him the groundwork, but then he put all the bells and whistles and made it made it great. Yeah. yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. Bob brought all his best people in. I could just, you know, spend a half hour naming them all, but like, you know, at every level, whether it was like the graphics designer or, you know, Barry Goldberg, the legendary, mm-hmm. you know, blues musician to give us incidental music. I mean, at every stop, Bob brought his best people in and, um, you know, even to this day, he's still uh, helping me produce this DVD because, you know, he knows mm-hmm. what he's doing and I do not. <laughs> because the DVD, home video is the end game for something like this because no matter how great it is, and this is great, it's, it's hard to get screens to not show Marvel Infinity War so that they can show, you know, bang, the burn story. Yeah. It's, it's tough. It's tough to get a theatrical release for a documentary, especially an indie one. But yeah. uh, we had a pretty good size uh, U.S. theatrical. Yeah. We got 100% on Rotten Tomatoes, yeah. and the New York Times gave us a pull quote of, you'll love this movie. Yeah. I mean, it just really was an extraordinary run. We, we would have kept going in the theaters, but um, we got this really great uh, opportunity to work with um, Apple Music and iTunes. And so we, uh, we pulled the, the, the film out of the theaters, even though at the time it was the hottest uh, music documentary in the country with the highest per theater averages and That's the best amazing. reviewed and all this stuff. And, um, you know, the only thing the film didn't get really was uh, um, Academy Award nomination or Grammy nomination. It didn't get those. And... And I think if more people had seen it, it might have, but yeah. we didn't make the movie for those awards. Right. We got the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame statue, which is the ultimate uh, reward. Right. Yeah. Your dad's a music guy. It's about music. That's what you want. You yeah. want the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame adulation. Yeah. And um, and everyone's going to see it now. That's what's great. Everyone is going to see it who wants to see it. Yeah. We're aiming for, uh, you know, uh, American masters. You know, I'm... Uh, not holding my breath because that's pretty tricky to get uh, on there, but um, it's the quintessential New York story and American Masters is out of New York City. So, um, you know, we're hoping is by that the PBS? end of the year, that's PBS. Okay. Yeah. Because, you know, again, the audience is mostly, are, are, I, I, you know, the older uh, who are watching PBS yeah. and buying DVDs, you know. So Yeah, but uh, this, is, this, this is for those people too. Yeah, yeah. And it's for, you know, young people are going to hear this music too and be, you know, they're going to be like, wow. 
when was that? When was that? When did that music come out? Before yeah. I was born? Amazing. Ultimately, if young people, and I think it is happening, if they can latch on to this story and see what it takes to make great art and, you know, the hard work that it takes and the dedication, um, I think if it inspires the younger generation, then we've really gone to the bonus level. And Stephen Van Zandt's Rock and Roll Forever Foundation is going to do a course around the film uh, later this year. That's fantastic. So uh, we will get be getting it into schools. My 13-year-old is so into the Beatles right now. That's like all she's listening to, which I think everyone goes through that phase. But then yeah. it's not a phase because once you discover it, you love it forever. Forever. But my oldest daughter, she is uh, she loves the zombies and she loves the kinks. I mean, she loves she loves it. So that great taste. I know. I'm excited. Uh, that way we have stuff to play in the car when we're driving to school. <laughs> right. Uh, I'm going to play Solomon Burke because we talked about him a lot. We, I don't think we've played anything from him. Let's play Everybody Needs Somebody to Love by Solomon Burke. And then we'll, we'll hear the Rolling Stones take a stab at that also. Everybody needs somebody. Everybody wants somebody to love. Honey to love, sugar to kiss, baby to miss now, baby to tease, sometimes to please, and I need, and I need. so casual yeah. just the hand claps are just all right i'm gonna go right into the stones here we go It's amazing. And then there's the Blues Brothers, which is you know, like one of my all-time favorite, uh, maybe the best cover. <laughs> Them. Everybody. To be honest, the Blues Brothers turned stupid white teenage boys onto the blues. Right. You know, you just, you know, you you saw them on Saturday Night Live, and and I don't know if I knew where that music came from. I didn't know if I if maybe that they wrote it or so or Paul Schaefer wrote them. Right. I didn't know. Yeah. Uh, but I I enjoyed it. There's Delbert McClinton songs and all that kind of stuff they were doing. Yeah. You know, I never listened to that type of music, but I listened to the Blues Brothers right, albums. It's right. crazy. Yeah. You never know how it's going to filter into your, uh, you know, it's into true. your life. It's true. Well, look, I didn't call you Bert the whole time. <laughs> I'm so happy. We didn't talk about Jerry Wexler, but we'll save that for the movie. Uh, I did not like that guy. 
he's, he's the hero of the bird burn story and also uh you know a villain and he's your godfather he's my godfather he was best man at the wedding um you know if he's you know when you look at the bird burn story he's the guy who really did the most to give my dad a leg up and yeah there was like a father-son relationship that went terribly wrong at the end yeah which is sad yeah it's sad it's sad and uh you know i wished i had you know met him and tried to reconcile maybe even somehow you know as Bert's son and uh, I called him uh, when I came out of the army my mother put me up to it without telling me anything about what had happened just you know? hand you the phone yeah yeah and uh, I said hey I'd love to meet you and he said well it sounds like you don't know what happened between your father and I at the end of days and if you still want to meet me uh, after you found out, you know, give me a call. And I mean, the blood had rushed out of my head by this point, And I was just shaking and I'm like, okay, thank you. I'll speak to you soon. And, uh, you know, it took me, you know, better part of a decade to learn what he was talking about. Mm. And Your mom so, didn't fill you in? Um, you know, my mom started telling me this story when I was uh, six years old. She'd crawl into bed with <laughs> uh -huh. me in the middle of the night, you know, a little bit drunk from being out working in the record business. And she'd you know, start crying and missing my dad. And she'd say, your father wasn't a gangster. Your father wasn't a gangster. I don't ever want you to think of your father as a gangster. And, I was and you're like, like, I'm just trying to sleep, mom. I'm just trying to sleep, mom. <laughs> what are you talking about? So, you know, she, uh, she started to tell me at a young age mm -hmm. and I would hear whispers of the mob and, you know, so I'd go into a, someplace and some guy would walk to me and say, you know, your father was really mobbed up. And I mean, it was like that kind of a thing. <laughs> and, um, yeah, so. You know, First of all, uh, you have nothing to do with that. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, so I, it's so weird that when people want to just want to tell you things like that about your parents or whoever, your great uncle, whatever, and you're just like, that's got nothing to do with me. I know. I was like this preppy, geeky kid that had no idea what they were talking yeah. about. And, you know, when I did meet Wazzle later in life, um, and I couldn't understand a word he said for the first, you know, year that I met him, but uh, and then I started to meet some other people and, and I learned really how deep it went. And, you know, Wazzle, uh, you know, he, he said, on the record, Tommy, I believe, said to me, on the record, you watch the wife and the kids. And that was right there at the funeral home. Like, you know, my dad was a closed coffin. My mother only let Tommy come in and mm -hmm. see Bert. And he said that to Wazzle on the record, which I learned is mob speak for literally what it sounds like. And on his deathbed, Wazzle, 90 years old, um, said, you know, your whole life, your kid didn't know it, but you had the mob behind you. And I was like, wow, Wazzle, thanks for telling me now. <laughs> no, but, uh, did um I did want to ask if if any of these uh the co-songwriters or any of the people we've talked about other than the mob guys, if they when your dad was had passed, um, were they surrogate uncles? Were they still in you know friendly with your mom and friendly with the family? Yes, um, so many of these guys, like I said, stood in the gap. Um, you know, growing up in in Atlanta, I really didn't know many of them, and we were sort mm -hmm. of too far away because they were all in New York or sure. in L.A. But um, I did start to meet them again once I sort of grew into manhood. And, uh, and it was like Jerry Ragavoy and Don Drowdy and Jeff Barry and Brooks Arthur and Gary Sherman, who's one of the stars of the film and arranger and orchestrator who's working with us on the musical still. I mean, he's standing in the shoes of the composer of the musical. And that's one of the reasons why the New York Times called the show gorgeously tuneful. Go. Uh, thank you, Gary. But, uh, you know, Bob Feldman, The Strange Loves, those guys. I mean, I could just keep going on and on. They, um, you know, they stood in the gap and they taught me who my dad was and uh, I'll be forever grateful to them. So when you, when you're sitting down to film their interviews, they're excited for you. Yeah. Yeah. Bob Sarles says that the reason why the film comes off, one of the reasons uh, the way it does is because these interviews poured their hearts out to mm -hmm. the son of 
this long lost friend of theirs. And, you know, my nervousness was very obvious. And mm-hmm. so I feel like they, they, they just took a different approach, I think, to the interview. If, if Martin Scorsese had interviewed them, it wouldn't have been as, as much love wouldn't, I don't think would have come out. Yeah. Of they it. wanted to do a good job for you. I think so. I think they felt for me and they wanted, and they realized that we were on a, as John Belushi said, a mission from God. We, this has really See, been now like, when I watch it again, I'm going to look at it from that angle because mm-hmm. yeah, they, that's why, yeah, you're right. That's why this is a little bit different. Yeah. There's so much love in these interviews and you know, you could say like, okay, well, is this a puff piece? Is this a hagiography? Mm-hmm. You know, did they, is it, you know, where are we, they not telling the whole story? And I think when you see the film, you see like, we, uh, we throw my dad on the sword a couple of times. We, we, mm-hmm. we tell, you know, we tell as, as true a story as we can. Yeah. In the musical, we made him so good. He was like, you know, we had to actually rough him up a little bit because he was like too, <laughs> too, too, uh, too good. So he was a just man. He was a great, just man. Last question. Did your mom, did your mom ever remarry? Yes. Several times. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, you know, she, uh, she married Eddie Bisco and had two sons, two boys. Eddie Bisco was the great white promotion man at Motown. Wow. Uh, there's great stories about him. Um, and, uh, you know, she hooked up with Nigel Olson, the drummer for Elton John, you know, for a period. <laughs> so like, you know, we grew up, you know, it was real you rock grew and up roll. around rock and roll still. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I didn't know if it was going to be, no, she never did. This was the love of her life or no, she married once. And, but I like, it was the love of her life. You know, she, she never got over my father's death. And I think that that uh, haunted her to the day that she died. And so, um, you know, all the different men that came in and, and, and and went, none of them measured up to They were just placeholders. Yeah. 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 Well, that's great. That's another, another thing about the movie. It is a love story. It's, 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 it's every, I know, I'm going on and on about it, but it really is. You will not be disappointed at yeah, all. That's what Steven Van Zandt says. He says, somebody said, it's a mob story. He goes, it's not a mob story. It's a love story. <laughs> it is. It's, it's, it's your dad's love of music and people's love of your dad and then your, your dad and your mom. It's fantastic. I've got, um, I got a whole list of songs. Let's do some little promoting and then you can tell me what you might want the play out song to be. Because we didn't play Let the Water Run Down. Oh, I love Let the Water Run Down. Would that be the play out of Benny King song? Yeah, let's okay, do let's that. let's do that one. Uh, so you can go to BertBurns.com. That's B-E-R-T-B-E-R-N-S.com. You can also go to BangTheBertBurnsStory.com. Right. Uh, is there a Twitter account? Are you on Twitter? There is a Twitter account, but uh, most of our following is on Facebook. Okay. Um, yeah, but uh, yeah, we're um, we're uh, self distributing the DVD through an imprint because I've grown up in the music business, so yeah. this is not uh, difficult to do. And um, you know, again, we'll have the film on uh, television broadcast in the fall. But uh, yeah, for the next few months, we're really going to be uh, trying to let people know that the film is available on DVD. And is the film? I, I think I asked you this already, but I forget what you said. Is the film on iTunes right now? Can you buy the film on iTunes currently? Yes, yes, it's on Apple Music. So if you're an Apple Music subscriber, you can uh, watch it for free. Okay, and good. Uh, and it's on iTunes as well. Um, and the Hour of Extras, which are pretty phenomenal. I know everybody thinks their extras are mm-hmm. you know great stuff, but this is we've got some extraordinary uh, extras in the can here, and there's a whole hour of it. And those are available both on iTunes if you purchase the film okay. and in the DVD. And on the DVD, and DVD comes out June first. Uh, just so you know, this this episode will drop next Thursday. Great, which is I think the twenty fourth. So we got a whole week of people can find this thing, this thing, this movie, this the, this your 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 labor of love. Yes, I call it a thing. It is. It's a thing too. Um, uh, let's promote this show a little bit. Uh, 
We are on uh, at Rock Solid Show on Twitter. I am at Pat underscore Francis. And Kyle, who's not here tonight, is at Kyle.SomeFunny. Uh, like us on Facebook. Go to the website, rocksolidpodcast.com. Go to the Patreon page, patreon.com forward slash rocksolidpodcast. And thank you so much, Brett, for being here. This was fantastic. I, I love sitting down with you. I love, uh, I can really see it in your, in your, your smile and your eyes, what, uh, what joy making this film did for you. And I hope that it, it got you closer to your dad. I hope that helped. And, and, and for your sister and, and your other siblings also. It, it really has. It's uh, like you said, it's been a long labor of love and we've brought our dad back to life on the living stage and the musical and now with this film. And, uh, you know, I just can't thank you enough for shining a light on, uh, on the legacy. This is my pleasure. And look, you know, whenever I see something that I love, I, I'm like, I want to tell people about it. And, and bang, the Burt Burns story is one of those things. So let's play out with a song of your choosing. This is the great Benny King. You know him from Stand By Me. But this is a song called Let the Water Run Down. Thank you, Brett. Thank you, Pat. I run to the room, turn on the faucet, I let the water run. I don't want to let her hear me, when I'm crying, won't let her see what she has done. Whoa, let the water run down, let it run, let it run. So I locked the door. I looked in the mirror, I don't like what I see A fool, what a fool, looking out of that mirror Crying all those tears at me Whoa, just let it run, let it run I hear them banging by the door Stop that banging on the door Coming out. Oh, I wish they wouldn't shout. All I need is one minute more. Then I'll open up the door. And this is.